Our Gospel reading this morning is from the book of John in chapter 3, verses 22 through 36. After this, Jesus and his disciples went out into the Judean countryside where they spent some time with them, and he baptized. Now John also was baptizing at Anon near Salem, because there was plenty of water, and people were constantly coming to be baptized. This was before John was put in prison. An argument developed between some of John's disciples and a certain Jew over the matter of ceremonial washing. They came to John and said to him, Rabbi, that man who was with you on the other side of the Jordan, the one you testified about, well, he's baptizing and everyone's going to him. To this John replied, Man can receive only what is given him from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said, I'm not the Christ, but am sent ahead of him. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and, and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine and it is now complete. He must become greater, I must become less. The one who comes from above is above all. The one who is from the earth belongs to the earth and speaks as one from the earth. The one who comes from heaven is above all. He testifies to what he has seen and heard, but no one accepts his testimony. The man who has accepted and uh, who has accepted it has certified that God is truthful. For the one whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for God gives the Spirit without limit. The Father loves the Son and has placed everything in his hands. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on him. May the Lord add his understanding to the reading of these words this morning. Hey, uh, hello everybody. It's great to be back at Mount Olympus. I uh, love coming here and, uh, you know, uh, I'm sorry Phil's away, but that's opened up a slot for me. So I'm, I'm happy to be here with you all this morning. I, I was about 13 years old and attending a Catholic boys' school in the north of England where I grew up. And I remember my French teacher, Mr. Neary, caught me gossiping with the boy next to me one day. Any of you ever been caught gossiping to the kid next to you in school? Yeah, yeah, right. Well, uh, <laughs> that, that was not an infrequent occurrence for me. I've since gone on to gossip with all kinds of people uh, all over the world. <laughs> but what he said that day has stuck in my mind. He said, Pasco, because we're, we're all addressed by our last names in boys' Catholic school back then. Pasco, um, you're going to grow up to be the kind of man who lets his wife go to work while you spend the day gossiping with the neighbors over the garden fence. <laughs> his was a prophetic voice. Luckily for my wife, he was not altogether correct, though he recognized my incredible sociable nature and my ability to tell a darn good story, he was wrong about my work ethic. 
And I had a great uncle, my great uncle Andy, who also spoke about me with a prophetic voice, one that was often loud and boisterous thanks to the significant amounts of beer he would drink on a Saturday night in the working man's club in this little coal mining town where we all lived. He was a Church of England goer on the few occasions that he did actually go to church. My mom and dad were Roman Catholic, which made our family a minority in northern England in the 1950s. Uncle Andy would take great delight in calling me Pope Pasco whenever I got on my soapbox about religion or church. He was prophetic in seeing my love for the spiritual life, but luckily again for my wife, dead wrong in predicting that I would become the supreme pontiff of the Catholic Church. At least it hasn't happened yet. Who were the prophetic voices in your early life? And if you're still young, who are the prophetic voices in your life today? When you look back to people who you consider had a prophetic voice, can you hear a thread of truth in what they predicted about you? Were any of them actually accurate in foreseeing your life's true calling? Were any of them even instrumental in shaping your calling? Or maybe you don't feel like you've actually found your true calling yet and you're still looking. Today's scripture uh, reading from John made me think about prophetic voices and callings. Jesus certainly had them in his life. And what prophetic voices they were. When I was writing this sermon, I started to imagine uh, Jesus like little boy Jesus. Jesus growing up as a little boy and hearing the baby stories his mother would tell him, like all moms do with their kids. I can just picture him climbing up in Mary's lap at the end of the day and saying, tell me again, Mama. Tell me about the angels. And Mary saying, all right, just one more time before bedtime. The day I got pregnant with you, I knew you were going to be somebody special because an angel came and told me that you were really the Son of God. And then when Joseph and I had to make that long journey to Bethlehem and you were born in a barn surrounded by animals, the whole sky lit up that night and there were thousands more angels all around. And then before you were even two years old, three of what seemed to me the richest men in the world came with expensive gifts and money because they said that one day you'd be a king. Now, Jesus, go to sleep. And when you wake up in the morning, you can help Joseph finish making that table that the Roman merchant ordered last week. C can you imagine how these prophetic voices might have rattled around in the head of little Jesus, the carpenter's son, when he was growing up? We don't know a whole lot about Jesus' childhood. Luke's gospel tells us um, of two more prophetic voices. Do you remember old Simeon and Anna who were there in the temple when Mary and Joseph take him um, shortly after his birth to present him? And 
they um, see these, this baby and, and they prophesy that this baby is destined to be the redemption of Israel. And again, uh, Luke tells the story of when Jesus was 12, he gets separated from his family on a trip to Jerusalem, and they find him in the temple, surrounded by all the learned teachers and scribes and um, all those learned in the law, and they are astounded by his wisdom. But we don't know anything about Jesus' teenage years or his 20s, other than these two little verses that close out chapter 2 of Luke's gospel where he says, um, he went down to Nazareth with them and was obedient to them, but his mother treasured all these things in her heart, and Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. That's all we know. So now fast forward about 20 years to today's reading, and we hear another prophetic voice, the voice of Jesus' cousin, John. Among all the people in Jesus' life who predict what he is to be, John is the most urgent and the most insistent. This colorful figure, dressed in camel skins and eating locusts and wild honey and living in the desert, he looked and acted every bit like those prophets from the olden times that no one had seen in Israel for about three or four hundred years. In the words of the prophet Isaiah, John proclaims to be the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. In the words of the prophet Malachi, he predicts the coming day of the Lord like a fire that will burn and consume. And he points to Jesus as the one who will bring about this new day. You know, in chapter 1 of John's gospel, we read uh, this. The next day, John saw Jesus coming towards him and said, Look, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. I have seen and I testify that this man is God's chosen one. Wow. So, but, but what's Jesus doing while John is proclaiming him to be the Lamb of God and the Chosen One? Look again at the opening line of today's reading. John 3, verse 22 says, after this, so after what went in before, Jesus and his disciples went out into the Judean countryside where he spent some time with them and baptized. Jesus was camped on a bend of the river, following in the family tradition started by John, and he's baptizing people. Now, hands up if you honestly thought that Jesus baptized people before you read that today. I didn't. You, well, you went to seminary. Uh, teaching preaching, healing, praying, you know, all these things you associate with Jesus, but baptizing? I mean, do you imagine Jesus standing in the River Jordan like John did, dunking people, baptizing them for their sins? It's not an image I have of Jesus. Surprise me. Surprise me to think of Jesus baptizing people. But John seems to think it's okay when some of his disciples come and they complain about Jesus. Rabbi, 
Uh, that man who was with you on the other side of the Jordan, the one you testified about, look, he's baptizing and everybody's going to him. And then John replies, a person can receive only what's given them from heaven. You yourself can testify that I said, I'm not the Messiah, but I'm sent ahead of him. Bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine, and it's now complete. He must become greater, and I must become less. In other words, John is saying, hey, I always told you I'm not the one to actually run the show. If Jesus wants to take over the baptizing business, that's okay. I'm ready. I'm out of here. Sort of like um, evangelist Billy Graham handing over the reins of his ministry uh, to, um, to his son Franklin, who's now passing it on to his son Will. Or like, uh, you know, maybe in show business, Liza Minnelli, who follows her famous mother Judy Garland on stage and, and screen. Or um, on the Channel 2 News, Matt Gephardt, that young, quirky, problem-solving clone of his more famous father, Bill Gephardt. I can't believe how much he's like his dad, you know. He simply assumed the reins, took the mantle. At the beginning of his public ministry here in John's Gospel, it seems, Jesus seems to think that what he needs to do is like take over the family business, take over the dynasty, and become a baptizer like John. further down the river. But but he doesn't do that for long, does he? What made him change his mind? That's what I wondered when I read this shocking little thing about Jesus. What made him change his mind? How did Jesus discover his true calling? And then for us, who are his followers today, how do we find our true calling as Christians? So I'm looking for an answer here. I, wondered, I, I looked at two stories, two other stories in John's Gospel. One um, just before this passage today, and then one that follows. And the first one is uh, Jesus' first recorded miracle at Cana. And the second one is his first recorded conversation with a woman other than his mother when he talks to this uh, Samaritan woman at the well. So... In this first story, Jesus and his mother are guests at a wedding, and the wine runs out. And his mother expects Jesus to do something about it, but Jesus is reluctant. He finally gives in and turns those great stone water jars for ritual washing and purification into high-quality table wine. Well, I find this extraordinary. The first time Jesus uses his miraculous powers as to provide more booze for a party. I think that trick of turning water into wine got him on everybody's guest list who was throwing a party for miles around. In some ways, it reminds me of those scenes in the X-Men movies when these young kids are discovering their mutant superpowers and they don't quite know how to control them yet. You know, there's a frivolous nature to Jesus' use of his miraculous powers, turning water into wine. First thing he does, Son of God arrives on earth, turn water into wine. 
sort of a, a frivolous nature that to me points to a, maybe an immaturity in Jesus' sense of who he is and what he's come here to do. The second story, when Jesus meets the Samaritan woman at the well, happens a little bit, um, just a few pages after uh, our text this morning. So here's Jesus, all alone, thirsty, and, and he pushes the social and religious rules of the day by asking this woman, this Samaritan woman, for a drink. She engages in a bantering sort of conversation with him, though she clearly knows she's breaking the rules too, And then Jesus tells her he knows the secret of water that will never make you thirsty again. And finally, when she questions him about the Messiah, he says to her, I am he. This exchange, to me, shows a remarkable maturity in Jesus' understanding of himself and his mission in the world. So in the space of just a few pages, in John's Gospel, Jesus goes from... um, using water as a party trick to using water to baptize to using water as a symbol for eternal life and to declare his mission as the Messiah to all the world, women as well as men, outcasts like the Samaritan woman as well as Jews. And then before long, in John's Gospel, we see Jesus standing in the temple grounds and shouting for everyone to hear on the last day of the festival, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as Scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. I see a progression, sort of the the process of Jesus' self-discovery in these stories in the early part of John's Gospel. Jesus finds his true calling. In fact, the Gospel of John in many ways is Jesus' statement of his true calling because it's in John's Gospel where Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. I am the true vine. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the way and the truth and the life. I am the resurrection. Jesus finds and states his calling. As I was preparing this sermon, I got a magazine in the mail yesterday uh, that contains an article titled, Seek Your Calling and Your Calling Will Seek You, Exploring Discernment as a Way of Life. And the article begins like this. Conscious of them or not, two underlying questions tend to tug at us throughout life. Why on earth am I here, and who sent me? Jesus obviously asks, asked those questions and found his answer. Discernment, the author of this article goes on to say, is all about following the soul's desire. She says, I often speak about desire as having been planted in the soul by God at the very beginning. It's part of our life's purpose to discover the most basic of our desires. And once we discover this basic desire, it impels us into fulfillment because of its inherent energy. We are urged forward by desire. 
And I think it was that desire in the soul of Jesus that would not let him remain for very long a baptizer on a backwater bend of the River Jordan. That desire in the soul of Jesus urged him forward with unstoppable energy to the fulfillment of his destiny on the cross and in his resurrection from the grave. I have a little daily devotional called My Utmost for His Highest. Anyone know that? By Oswald Chambers. Oswald Chambers was this, this early 20th century Scottish minister, a teacher and preacher. And one of his reflections says this. Put everything in your life afloat upon God, going out to sea on the great swelling of the tide of his purpose, and your eyes will be opened. If you believe in Jesus, you are not to spend all your time in the calm waters just inside the harbor, full of joy, but always tied to the dock. You have to get out past the harbor, into the great depths of God, and begin to know things for yourself. Begin to have spiritual discernment, says Oswald Chambers. Jesus calls us to leave the safe, wa the safe waters as he did, to get away from that quiet bank of the river where it was fine to baptize people. Get out of the safe waters. Calls us to do the same and to discover and live out our true calling. So will you hear his challenge today? Will you listen to the prophetic voices in your life? Will you discern your soul's desire and let that shape your life as a Christian? I mean, if you're willing, and if you're willing to begin right now, I'm going to ask you to take just a few minutes with me as I ask you three simple questions. So I'll invite you. Close your eyes, get comfortable. As I ask these three questions, you let them dwell in your heart. And the first question is this to ask yourself this morning. It's who am I? Not in terms of my job or my family situation or even as the world sees me, but who am I as God sees me, as my soul sees me, and as I deeply and truly see myself? Who am I? Second question I'll invite you to ask yourself is what do I value most? Not in terms of my career or my possessions, but where do my deepest values and beliefs lie? What do I value most?
And finally, given your answers to who am I, what do I value, the third question is this. Therefore, what should I be doing with my life? Well, I call this my three-minute retreat. Thank you for coming to my three-minute retreat. These simple questions are often the hardest to answer. So I'll invite you to continue reflecting on them as you go home today. As you let the noisy chatter of the world fall away and begin to explore and to understand who you are and what you value, then your sense of purpose in life may start to take shape or take a different shape or take you on a different path. Because I believe that's what happened to Jesus. In John's gospel, as his mission becomes more clear, his miracles become more amazing. And here's the progression of the miracles in John's gospel. From changing water into wine, to healing the sick and the blind and the lame, to feeding 5,000 people with a few loaves and fish, to walking on water, to raising Lazarus after he's been dead for so long that his sister says, he stinks by now, to the final miracle of his own resurrection. So, in closing then. Who are the prophetic voices in your life? What do you hear them calling you to do? Will you answer that deepest longing of your soul? And are you willing, as Jesus was, to leave the quiet backwaters of good work, wonderful ministry, baptizing all who came, leave the quiet waters, and launch your life on that great swelling tide of God's purpose for you. Amen.